This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Minister number nine of your guidelines, free from hate and violent extremism. One, the Prime Minister has been obviously talking a lot, refers to protecting Canadians from hate, violent extremism, as well as disinformation. Now, I believe no one here defends hate speech, and all Canadians deserve to feel safe in their communities and online. My question is, how will you enforce this measure? How will you monitor these platforms while also protecting free speech? So free speech is absolutely essential. It's part of our charter rights and freedom. This is why I became a liberal. Uh, and this is really core to our democracy and what it means to be Canadian. But at the same time, there's clear limitations to that when it comes to hate, for example. Uh, and we see newspapers and broadcasters that hold themselves to account when it comes to not spewing that kind of uh, hate on their platforms. So clearly these digital platforms that have emerged also have a responsibility. Uh, we all are very aware of the 51 individuals that were killed in New Zealand, in Christchurch, uh, and that really prompted this call to action where the Prime Minister was at Paris to say platforms need to step up. If they have the technology, if they have the ability to bring people together, to connect people, and they're investing in AI and all these different uh, technologies. They need to deploy those technologies to prevent uh, those platforms from being used as means to disseminate extremism, terrorism, or hate. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to do with the government as a government is really apply pressure uh, to these platforms to hold them to account. And uh, those platforms recognize they need to step up as well. And that's one key mechanism of how we want to deal with this. The debates over intermediary liability, which focus on what responsibility should lie with internet platforms and service providers for the content they host that's posted by their users, has been taking place around the world in parliaments, op-ed pages, and the broader public debate. Much like the exchange you just heard between Canadian Conservative MP Dan Albus and Innovation Science and Economic Development Minister Navdeep Baines from earlier this spring, There are no easy answers, with policy choices that have implications for freedom of expression, online harms, competition, and innovation. To help sort through the policy options and their implications, I'm joined on the podcast this week by Daphne Keller, the Director of Intermediary Liability at Stanford's Centre for Internet and Society. Daphne, who served as Associate General Counsel for Google until 2015, worked on groundbreaking intermediary liability litigation and legislation around the world while at the company, and her work at Stanford focuses on platform regulation and internet users' rights. She recently posted an excellent article on the Balkanization blog that provided a helpful guide to intermediary liability lawmaking and agreed to chat about how policymakers can adjust the dials on new rules to best reflect national goals. Daphne, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. So as as you know, there's been a lot of momentum lately towards regulating online speech and establishing more liability for the large internet platforms. And that's an issue that we've been grappling with really, I think, since the popularization of the internet back in the 1990s. But today there seems to be more and more countries expressing concern about online harms and looking especially to the large platforms, the Googles and Facebooks and others to do more with real legal and regulatory threats if they don't. 
so before we get into some of the challenges inherent with this kind of do something demands, uh, I thought we could set the groundwork a little bit from a couple of perspectives, both what the law says now and, and what the platforms have been doing. Why don't we start with the laws and, and recognizing their differences, of course, between lots of different countries. Where have we been uh, for the last number of years anyway, even going back a couple of decades with respect to some of these liability questions? Well, a lot of countries never enacted internet-specific content liability laws. So depending where you are in the world, it might be that these things get resolved just based on you know, existing defamation law or existing copyright law. But in um, the US and the European Union, the law has been relatively stable going back uh, two decades-ish. Um, in the US, we've had two very major statutes that occupy almost the whole field. We have the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act for copyright, and that sets out a sort of uh, detailed takedown process with a lot of prescriptive steps. And then the other major US law is Communications Decency Act 230, generally known as CDA 230, which is a very broad immunity for most other kinds of claims, for anything that's not intellectual property or a federal crime. And so things like defamation or invasion of privacy claims, the platforms are just immunized. Um, in Europe, is it useful if I go into some detail about Europe or is that wandering no, I, to the topic for you? I think it's really useful because if you, from a Canadian perspective in particular, we've on the one hand got now the USMCA that seems to put some of the US rules in place in Canada, at least at a high level via trade. But at the same time, I don't think there's any question, but that what's been taking place in Europe is influencing a lot of the thinking among some of the, some Canadian politicians. Yeah. Okay. So the the main law on platform liability at the EU level is the e-commerce directive, which was passed in 2000, and it's implemented in different member state laws slightly differently. But the the basic concept is you get a limited immunity if you are a certain kind of intermediary. So you, you have to be a hosting or caching or transit provider. So it's a little bit of a funny immunity in that it's not clear if it covers search engines or you know some, some other things you might expect to be covered by, by intermediary liability protections. Um, but if, if you're eligible for those safe harbors, the rule is basically you have to take down unlawful content if you know about it. And that uh, the, however the member states and the courts implement the law, they can't compel you to go out and proactively monitor. It's just a reactive knowledge-based obligation. Um, and that I think has had some, some real shortcomings just because uh, it lacks a lot of the procedural protections that you see in something like the DMCA, where, for example, the person who's being accused of copyright infringement is supposed to be able to get a notice that it's happened and be able to challenge it and so forth. Um, th there isn't that kind of detail in, in most European laws. And so platforms have an even greater incentive to just take an accuser's word for it and go ahead and take content down, even if it's not at all clear that it's illegal, um, because the, it's much safer to take things down and avoid risk for yourself. And you know what empirical data we have uh, shows this happening, shows lots and lots of unfounded allegations and lots and lots of erroneous takedowns. 
Right. I mean, and, and I think the situation sometimes can be somewhat similar in Canada, where without some of the clear-cut procedural safeguards, faced with the question of what might be unlawful content or might not be, sometimes large platforms may err on the side of taking down just because it's simpler to do that. So we've got large platforms having some amount of protections, safe harbors in both the major jurisdictions, stronger procedural protections such that perhaps I suppose the bias is more to leave up in the United States unless the process is met, whereas in Europe uh, that may reverse. I'd how, do, how do the companies handle some of those kinds of differences? Is it as simple as in the U.S. they're more likely to err to leave content online and in Europe and perhaps similar countries without those procedural tr protections, they're more likely to take things down? Uh, certainly. I mean, the, if, if we're talking about the, the big platforms like the, the Facebooks and Googles and, and Twitters of the world, they all have nationally specific versions that are targeted to users in a particular jurisdiction and often are optimized for them in ways that are about um, you know, commercial success. There you know, will be a um, Google Doodle that's relevant for a, a local holiday that's shown just in that country, for example. Um, but also by having different versions of the service for different countries, you can sort of sandbox legal compliance and say, okay, we've established that this content is illegal in France, so we're gonna take it down from the French version of the service, um, but you know, we're, we're not going to apply French law globally. Right. So that, of course, gets us into the question of things like the Equistec case that we had in Canada, where you get uh, a single country like Canada trying to make those decisions, not just for its own citizens, but effectively for others via court order. But we'll park that for the moment and stick to because it, this stuff gets so complicated so quickly. And I guess stick stick primarily to the, the pressure for more regulation, the sense that somehow the rules, as, as you've just articulated, are at least in the minds of certainly some politicians, and we certainly see it as part of the discourse, not good enough that airing even on one side or the other uh, still has, has left us in a sense with a certain amount of harm online. And I think there's a greater concern and appreciation for that. So there is unquestionably mounting pressure to do more from a regulatory perspective as a way of requiring in effect these large platforms to do more. Now, you've been really prolific on the issue and written all different kinds of things on it, but it was a piece on the blog Balkanization that really crystallized it for me because it highlights the challenges of intermediary liability laws. I guess as a starting point, what are we often trying to balance when it comes to these laws? Yeah, so there are generally three goals that legislatures are trying to balance. One is to prevent harm. You know, so to take down content if it's defaming someone or if it's movie piracy or, you know, causing harm. Um, another is to protect free expression. And obviously there's this trade-off where if the platforms are um, very afraid of liability, they're likely to err on the side of taking things down. And so controversial speech gets suppressed and so forth. And then the, the third goal is protecting technical innovation um, and economic growth that can come with it. So, it, you know, if, if you are a small startup, um, it's really important to have immunities and, you know, know that you're not going to be required, for example, to build a hundred million dollar content filter. Because um, <laughs> right now, um, at least in the U.S. and, and in Europe, if, if you start a new platform and you want to compete with Facebook or compete with Twitter, 
you can know with relative certainty what kind of legal exposure you're setting yourself up for and what it is you're going to have to take down and potentially pay lawyers for. Um, but uh, but if, if that becomes less certain, then it's harder and harder for small companies to enter the market and for people to experiment with new technologies. So just to, to recap, the, the three goals being balanced are harm prevention, free expression protection, and innovation. Sure. And, and, and I guess before we get into sort of how, how you move some of those dials with those three, three goals, I'm going to assume that many countries will look at each of those three policy objectives somewhat differently. I mean, some Absolutely. may have constitutional norms that provide very strong protections on the freedom of expression side and are more willing to give, let's say, on the innovation side. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of manifests in two ways. One is that some countries prohibit more speech than others. So, you know, they strike a balance, for example, that protects privacy more um, and, you know, sacrifices free expression in exchange or, or vice versa. But also that manifests in how countries set up their platform liability rules. You know, whatever it is that you are prohibiting, uh, your platform liability rules are going to lead platforms to err in one side or the other. And so if you are a, starting from less speech protective goals, then maybe you're more tolerant of a rule that's going to lead platforms to take down a little bit too much speech or a lot too much speech. Right. And certainly we've seen, at least in some places, perhaps with the, without some of the constitutional norms around freedom of expression, there's been certainly, at least lately, a great deal of emphasis on the harm side. Uh, Absolutely. And, and if that's the priority, then, you know, if, the, if, we're, if we're kind of trying to deal with each of these three things, there may be real implications, I think, is what you're getting at, ultimately, either for fostering innovative competitors in this space or for the safeguards around freedom of expression. Yeah. And I think right now we're seeing a big tendency for policies from Europe to get exported to the rest of the world, um, either via other countries adopting similar laws or via platforms taking European law and just applying it globally. But the, that's kind of problematic, um, not just because of the conflict with United States law, which is what you hear about the most, but because of the, the conflict with a lot of other countries' laws. Um, if you compare in human rights law, the European Convention or the EU Charter they prioritize some things like privacy and, and personality rights protection relatively high compared to the Inter-American Convention, which explicitly is set up to prioritize free expression more highly. Right. And we, we ran into some of those questions in Canada last year around website blocking related issues, where, again, it was freedom of expression versus copyright versus privacy versus even net neutrality type issues. And you've got to grapple with each of those kinds of competing objectives. Why don't we stay for a moment with the, the implications for freedom of expression around this? Because they're, they're, at least as part of the discourse lately, there's been a tendency to, amongst some certainly, to sideline that, to sort of say, well, listen, of course, it may have some implications, but we're now focused more on the harm. As we start getting into intermediary liability type rules, what ultimately are some of the real implications, the negative, potential negative effects, I suppose, for freedom of expression? Well, I mean, already we see things like governments abusing 
copyright takedown systems to suppress criticism. Um, the government of Ecuador got caught using DMCA requests to try to take down police brutality videos and, and critical journalism. So, you know, even with the systems that we have now, there's um, a lot of opportunity for abuse. Sometimes it silences really important political speech. Other times the abusive takedown requests are like one commercial competitor trying to silence another, which is also a problem. Um, but the, there's, just, there, there's, there's a lot of room for important speech to disappear. Um, the maybe most politically consequential shift that I see right now is the tremendous emphasis in Europe and in some other regions on terrorist content. Um, because I think as platforms err on the side of taking down too much to be safe, the thing that's kind of adjacent to so-called terrorist content is likely to be political speech about tough issues, you know, about American military policy in the Middle East or about immigration policy in Europe. And so that sort of erring on the side of taking down too much when what you're looking for is, is potentially you know, violent extremist supporting speech threatens some really important stuff. That's interesting. I mean, in Canada, we've largely avoided the takedown rules and copyright that you referenced. The successive governments have, in a sense, I think, looked at the experience elsewhere and seen some of these kinds of implications, such as the Ecuadorian example that you just provided, and largely avoided adopting that, though, Many of those platforms that, of course, are very popular in Canada still use effectively uh, takedown systems. So Canadians find themselves subject to it at a certain level, even if it isn't found within our laws. I mean, it's striking to talk about sort of some of these decisions and the removal of content. What role, if any, do the courts play in all of this? Or is this just it falls to the platforms and they are the ones making these calls? Well, it depends where you are. You know, there, there are some very interesting rulings internationally uh, saying the courts have to be involved in, in some countries. So in Argentina, the Supreme Court ruled that for, for most kinds of content, uh, a platform doesn't have any legal obligation to take it down until a court has looked at it and given it, you know, full and fair due process and adjudicated that it's illegal because they didn't want to put platforms in the decisions of, of being the arbiters of speech rules. There's a similar ruling from the Supreme Court of India um, saying you need an you know, adequate government authority to decide what's illegal and you shouldn't put it in the, the hands of platforms. Um, that, of course, isn't how it has worked in the US with copyright or in Europe with the, the knowledge-based takedown systems that they have. And it, that creates a, a sort of asymmetry in the access to remedies for the people who are affected by takedowns. If you're somebody who is a victim of defamation or a rights holder whose copyright is being infringed and a platform doesn't do what you want, you can sue them. <laughs> you can take it to court and get your rights enforced. But if you're someone who's an online speaker and you have been wrongly silenced by you know a false accusation or an error uh in most countries you don't have standing to go to court and challenge that so there there isn't a way to correct the errors of over removal there's only a way using courts to correct the errors of under removal 
Right. I mean, it's, it is for, for those that are accustomed to seeing, you know, due process as a core part of protecting freedom of expression, the notion that we would ultimately leave to large platforms, these decisions, um, it can be pretty frightening. And it was again, to think to the, the site blocking issue in Canada, the, the proposal that was put forward was one that did not involve direct court oversight, which was one, 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 a part where the real concerns lay. You know, when you start vesting so much responsibility in these platforms to make these kinds of decisions, there are those that say that's that's appropriate in part because they are increasingly likening the platforms to publishers and saying, well, mm-hmm. this, this sure looks a lot like a conventional publisher. Shouldn't they have the same kind of responsibility? What are some of the implications as you see it as of treating large internet platforms as akin to a conventional publisher? Well, I, I think it would be impossible for them to function if they were treated like publishers. You know, publishers do pre-publication review of the editorials that they put up or the, you know, TV shows that they air. They, and if there's something controversial in there, they have a lawyer look at it and decide if it's legal. You can't layer a process like that on top of Twitter or Facebook you know, what are they supposed to do? Hold all of our tweets while they have their legal team evaluate them? You know, they're just, there. there isn't a model where truly publisher-like legal responsibility um, can be put on platforms, but we still get to post things instantaneously and communicate and have a soapbox or talk to our friends. You know, all, all of the uses that we value that come from having an instantaneous communication platform on the internet depend on those intermediaries not having to pre-review everything we say. Right, and I mean, that, that does highlight the particular challenge that I know you, you, that you've seen, and I had a chance to see it at least one of the internet content moderation at scale conferences. When you start getting into just the, the sheer amount of content that exists and what it ultimately means to put responsibility on a platform, potentially to vet all of that, even to not vet it, even to try to deal with all of it, uh, is something that we haven't really seen, I think, really before in publishing or content history. It's everybody having the opportunity, in a sense, to speak and using these platforms to do it. What are, are some of the implications if you, if you move towards almost a one-size-fits-all type approach saying that we are going to have this requirement whether it's vetting or beforehand or even take action after given the the scope and size of what's taking place if we treat the facebook's as akin to you know other other platforms or large sites that that have a lot of user generated content out there the wikipedia's or reddits of the world yeah well i mean i i do want to be clear that i'm not saying our only choices are give them complete immunity or you know, lose the internet. The sort of the, the point of the, the balkanization piece is there are a lot of knobs and dials you can turn in the law. You know, you could have uh, an accelerated TRO process to get something taken down, or you could have some kinds of content where we do expect platforms to know it when they see it and take it down, and others where you wait for a court, uh, which is what the law de facto does anyway right now. You know, you, platforms even in the US have to take down child sex abuse material immediately if they see it. They're not supposed to wait for a court to assess it. Um, but the rule is very different for defamation, you know, where 
uh, it's often very difficult to to know the correct legal assessment. Um, so, you know, just, just with that background that I don't think we, we need an all or nothing system, and I'm not saying lawmakers in the 90s got things perfect and we <laughs> should never re-ask any questions. Um, but, but whatever the obligations are that we put on platforms, the kinds of things we might reasonably ask Facebook or YouTube to do are very different from the kinds of things we might reasonably ask a small local blog or a two-person company developing a chat app or you know smaller competitors to do and i think lawmakers are often falling into a trap where they say we need to regulate platforms and what they have in mind is facebook and youtube and they know that youtube can do things like spend a hundred million dollars developing a copyright filter and they know that Facebook can do things like hire, is it 20 or 30,000 people at this point to do content moderation? You know, they just sort of really move mountains and put tremendous resources into this. And so they craft laws accordingly. They say, well, platforms should have to filter or platforms should have to have very rapid human review uh, when they're notified that something is unlawful. And that's tolerable for Google and Facebook. I, I think those laws could, are very likely to change the major platforms so that they take down a lot more lawful speech, um, but they're not going to go out of business. But if you are medium or automatic or uh, even Pinterest or Reddit, Reddit has 500 employees. <laughs> you know, they don't have a multi tens of thousands of people moderation team. Um, and so the, the kinds of rules that might plausibly be imposed on very large platforms just won't work for small platforms. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I, I think we're certainly, we're, law, we're certainly past the prospect of saying it's, there are no rules out there. I think you've highlighted it. There's, there always have been some, and in some places, there's been an expectation of even more aggressive uh, takedown and moderation, but it's clear we're moving more and more. The question is, I think, as you've put it, how you adjust the dial at a certain level. One of the things that, that, that has been striking to me is, is how much emphasis there has been on the platform responsibility for harmful speech, let's say, as opposed to the focus on individuals themselves. Um, so, you know, in the aftermath of Christchurch, for example, terrible event where almost all the focus seemed to be on what Facebook did or didn't do or YouTube did or didn't do as opposed to the individual who did this and other people around that that might have been doing this. Do you have thoughts on you know what we might do to not just focus on platform responsibility here but individual responsibility as well for where, where there are people purveying hate or engaging in on in things that, that are illegal under various laws? Yeah, I, so I think the focus on platforms is on the one hand uh, understandable because they represent a choke point. You know, like they can shut down a lot of individuals uh, in situations where it's hard for plaintiffs and law enforcement to go find those individuals. But they're a pretty bad choke point <laughs> because they won't stand up for the individual speaker's interests outside of, you know, relatively special circumstances. Um, but, but, uh, on the other hand, focusing on the platforms really risks failing to address the underlying issues. 
and this we've seen this um, in the the EU terrorism context. There's been tremendous energy put into making platforms take down videos that are recruitment videos or or terrorist violence videos. And then when civil society organizations in Europe have asked the police, well, how many of those uploaders did you go try to find? Or how many of the video creators did you prosecute? How many actual investigations came out of this? <laughs> there don't seem to be a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of efforts being put in that direction. And, and so, you know, it, it's not that all, all enforcement should move off of platforms and onto individuals, but it certainly is the case that focusing so excessively on platforms is missing out on really important pieces of, of solving the problem. Mm -hmm. The other, I mean, for, for many cases, there's another complication here, as I, you know well from, from the copyright context and, and from other contexts where you work, which is online speakers who are sharing illegal content are often anonymous. And so if we say the law should go after the speakers more, um, you know, that starts inviting lawmakers to strip away at anonymity rights or propose that platforms should have to retain the real IDs of people who post content. So, you know, there, there are huge policy trade-offs in any direction there. Yeah, I, think, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really striking just how each time you peel back just a little bit on some of these policy choices, it's not the slam dunk that you sometimes hear about as part of the discussion, just, you know, just regulate they, you know, they broke it. Um, they got to fix it sort of thing because there are, mm -hmm. there are those kinds of choices. I, I assume you don't have much of a crystal ball and it's tough to know where we're necessarily going. So rather than ask closing by asking sort of what is this landscape going to look like in 12, 12 months or 24 months, I guess I'm curious, are, are you optimistic that, as there is action, because I think it certainly feels like there's a lot of momentum there, that that countries and politicians are going to get the, the complexity that, that you're highlighting here? Or are we at a point, at a moment in time, where there is just, there is this so-called tech clash and such strong momentum towards you got to do something that some of those implications will simply get lost in the rush to do something? I'm not optimistic in the US, um, and this is part of why I put up that balkanization piece, because I see people proposing laws that are just ignorant of sort of the, the known um, doctrines that can be deployed in intermediary liability. You know, they say, oh, well, let's just tell platforms to be reasonable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> without <laughs> looking at what are platforms likely to do if they have a vague standard. Well, they're likely to just take everything down to avoid risk. Um, so I, I, I think we are at risk in the U.S. of getting laws that are so badly drafted that they might just be unconstitutional. Um, but going through the process of passing a law and then litigating to figure out if it's unconstitutional is not a really good way to arrive at standards. Um, in Europe, I'm in a way more optimistic. Um, it's, it's not that I like most of the legal proposals that have been coming out of Europe now, but, but that's mostly because they represent a sort of policy trade-off that I wouldn't make between um, free expression protection and, and harm prevention, for example. But European civil society has been very active on intermediary liability issues for quite a while. And so you tend to see in the legal proposals coming out of the EU, 
um, at least process protections, you know, at least ideas like if you're going to use a technical filter to identify supposedly unlawful content, you should have some humans double check to make sure the filter didn't make a mistake. Or you see legal proposals saying things like you, you should notify the users and give them an opportunity to challenge. Or the, the latest draft of the terrorist content regulation um, which is very close to becoming a law there, has some really impressive transparency provisions for government. Um, so saying not just that platforms have to be transparent about what they're taking down and why, but also that if governments are requesting that content be taken down, they need to tell the public what it is that they're doing. So we, we are slowly moving toward kind of knowing what the what the dials and knobs are and, and what are the things that we can do to help create more protections. And in a way, um, <laughs> slowing things down seems like our best chance of building up a more educated set of um, policy making, uh, more education in the policy making community so that we get better laws. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, I, you've done it. You've, done a lot to try to help educate because as I say the, the stuff that you've been working on the the large databases that highlight the kinds of cases that are out there that allow for a more comparative look as well as some of the analysis is in many ways where people need to start once they've once they've concluded that there needs to be some kind of policy measures taken or regulatory measures taken there needs to be recognition that's step one that's not the end of the story that's really in many ways just the beginning of trying to craft things that are both effective but also reflect the sort of values that domestically exist as well as constitutional norms and and all the other policy priorities that you say can be fiddled with i suppose with those knobs and dials yeah, yeah. well hopefully we'll do a good job hopefully daphne thanks so much for joining me on the podcast thank you michael That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at M. Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.